0: Hey, it's Anna Maria Tremonti, and I'm excited to tell you about my new podcast. It's called More, and I'll be talking to people you may think you already know until you hear them here. We've got a little more time to explore and to probe and even to play a little. So get ready for the likes of David Suzuki, Catherine O'Hara, Margaret Atwood, and many others. You can find More with Anna Maria Tremonti wherever you get
1: your favourite podcasts.
2: This is a CBC podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to White Coat Black Art, the show about medicine from all sides of the gurney.
3: Chase
2: Lyme disease is an equal opportunity condition affecting Canadians of all ages. What's your name? Chase. Do you remember being in hospital? That's already a few weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah.
3: I had a needle. You had a needle.
2: You had a needle. Chase Green looks healthy now. But in late July, the five year old got flu like symptoms plus a rash on his shoulder.
3: Thought it was ringworm. We've seen ringworm. I run daycare. It didn't.
2: When he complained of a headache, his mom, Mandy, took him to their local ER in Kempville, just outside Ottawa.
3: He checked him over. He had about seven to nine circles all over his body. Um, doctor had no idea what it was.
2: Although never found, in all likelihood, Chase was bitten by a black legged tick infected with a type of bacterium called Borrelia. Both the ticks and the bacteria are spreading so fast across Canada that many public health units say that if you get a tick bite, you should be treated for Lyme. But in Chase's case, both the ER doctor and his GP wanted to wait for test results to confirm Lyme disease before giving Chase antibiotics.
3: By that afternoon, he crawled across the floor onto the couch, screaming that he didn't feel well and that he had a really bad headache. He had had a stiff neck the entire time.
2: How worried were you?
3: Very, very worried. He couldn't open his eyes. He was photosensitive. The tears were pouring down his face. He was not well at that point.
2: This time, Mandy took Chase to Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Ontario in Ottawa. The
3: triage nurse, luckily, or unluckily, has a wife that was suffering from chronic Lyme disease. He rushed right to the ER doctor and got his... Into a room right away.
2: Turns out the Ottawa area is one of a growing number of Lyme hotspots in the province. The Public Health Agency of Canada says that in 2017 there were more than 2,000 reported cases of Lyme disease in the country. Up from just 144 in 2009. So now looking back, what do you think of the fact that an emergency physician and a family doctor didn't suspect Lyme disease?
3: It's almost sad in a hot zone that the people that we rely on to take care of us don't have the knowledge to take care of us properly.
2: It took two hospital admissions, two spinal taps, and 12 days of IV antibiotics to put Chase on the mend.
3: So instant recovery almost. It was less than 12 hours that he was back to being himself again.
2: Still, Um, his mother Mandy worries about the future.
3: It is definitely a concern. Without enough knowledge and without enough research, nobody can tell me definitively that there is going to be no symptoms. Nobody can tell me definitively that there is going to be symptoms. The wait and see, I think, is the worst part.
2: Many studies have shown that when Lyme disease is caught early, it's very treatable. But there is a reason Mandy's worried. As you'll hear, Lyme disease is as steeped in fear, uncertainty, and controversy as almost any condition I've ever seen. Today, we're going to unpack how that happened. And we'll examine the impact on some very sick patients who are stuck in the middle of a battle between medical experts who can't agree about whether the chronic version of Lyme disease exists, much less how to treat it. People like Jane Bailey of Nova Scotia.
1: I had a bug go into my ear. It was in there for three and a half days and I knew eventually it would have to come out, and it surely did. It was the size of a kidney bean, so whatever it was was fully engorged, and we had a look at it in my hand. And because I'd worked in an entomology lab a few years before, I did recognize it as a tick.
2: Jane has had serious health issues since being bitten by a tick while vacationing at the Grand Canyon back in August 2013.
1: When I went on that vacation, I was 159.6 pounds, and I know that because we had to be weighed to be flown in by a helicopter. By January of 2015, um, I was below 95 pounds. I was tall. Wow. And all my muscles were atrophying, and I lost all my muscle tone. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I couldn't pick anything up. I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself. I couldn't make a cup of tea. I was photophobic, so I couldn't stand the light. If I did manage to walk, I looked like an 80, 90-year-old woman, stooped over, trying to shuffle along in extreme pain. It was was the worst time of my life.
2: A very far cry from the 48-year-old biology teacher and ex-military member who, prior to the tick bite, was in peak physical condition. About a month after returning from vacation, Jane felt unusually tired. She got joint pains, heart palpitations, couldn't sleep, and even had trouble remembering names. She didn't see her family doctor until May 2014, nine months after the tick bite.
1: She asked if there'd been any recent insect bites. It just clicked, and I said, yes. And then I told her I'd had a tick bite, and I asked, do you think I could have Lyme disease? And... She said no, it's highly unusual, but I asked for a test. She, at the same time, she made a referral to ID, infectious, infectious disease. disease. Di- yeah. Yes, the test result was uh, negative. At that time, I had no idea of any of the issues associated with um, test sensitivity or indeed with diagnosis and treatment.
2: As Jane found out, when it comes to chronic or persistent symptoms of Lyme disease, there are several controversies, or issues as she calls them. The biggest is whether chronic Lyme disease actually exists. At the heart of it is a difference of opinion between two groups. On one side, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, or IDSA, with over 11,000 physicians, scientists, and public health experts. In 2006 guidelines, the IDSA flat-out denied the existence of chronic Lyme disease. A new draft update acknowledges some patients have persisting or recurrent symptoms, but those symptoms are also found in diseases like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. Their advice is widely accepted by the larger medical community. The IDSA guidelines have been endorsed by the Association of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases Canada. Opposing the IDSA is the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, or ILADS, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary medical group dedicated to the appropriate diagnosis and treatment of Lyme and associated diseases. ILADS says patients can experience persistent, i.e., chronic Lyme disease, though the reasons are poorly understood. That difference in opinion has led to a vocal patient movement.
3: These people call themselves the Lyme Army, and they say they're not being taken seriously by the CDC.
2: Made up of people like Jane, who feel they've been abandoned by the medical system. At the New Brunswick legislature, 70 others on hand to tell of growing frustration and anger. The public right now are getting more educated than the doctors. In it. They write letters, start petitions, and hold protests.
0: Between those extremes is Dr. John Alcott. I I like to say we're the Switzerland of the controversy. We're really focused at the Johns Hopkins uh, Research Center on finding the facts. We don't take sides in the controversy. We try to find the knowledge that will help resolve the controversy.
2: He's an associate professor in the School of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. He's also director of the Lyme Disease Research Center. You've said the battle over Lyme disease and how to treat it is one of the biggest controversies medicine has seen.
0: What's at the root of the issue? The root of the issue is really after kind of standard appropriate treatment of Lyme disease, there's a subset of patients that go on to develop a chronic illness. And the root of the difficulty is we don't know the biologic mechanisms or how to measure that. And so without those fundamental knowledge features, it's hard to know what the best therapy is. And so when there's a lack of knowledge, then there's different opinions. And so there's some people that don't really believe that this chronic illness is very significant. Uh, Maybe they might even think it doesn't exist, or if it exists, it's mild and not um, clinically that important. And then there's other um, groups of patients and physicians that have a different opinion, that it's more common and much more significant and really demands a more aggressive approach. So there's two ends of the spectrum and then everything in between. Based on his clinical practice plus his research studies, Alcott has drawn his own conclusions. Do you believe chronic Lyme disease exists? I think the chronic Lyme disease illness definitely exists, but right now it's defined really just by symptoms. The symptoms are fatigue, cognitive dysfunction, musculoskeletal pain, as well as other symptoms, but those symptoms aren't specific to Lyme disease, so they could also represent other diseases. And again, without a blood test, we can't right now sort out those other diseases from the Lyme disease. Alcott has published papers on patients with persistent symptoms following treatment for Lyme disease
2: he and other doctors call that post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome.
0: We've done what other groups had never done, which was to follow those patients over time after treatment and compare them with non-Lyme-infected control populations. It's really important to know that these are ideally treated patients. Again, they were diagnosed early. And with early ideal diagnosis and ideal treatment, we still see about 10% of the patients 6 to 12 months later have lingering symptoms. So we think that's proof that this post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome exists. And it's probably higher in patients that don't have ideal diagnosis and treatment. Jane Bailey fits Dr. Alcott's profile,
2: but there's an important distinction. She didn't have an early diagnosis and treatment. Months after her symptoms began, she convinced the infectious diseases specialist who saw her to give her two courses of antibiotics. But after that, her advocacy
1: fell on deaf ears. So I'd written a letter to her A week before, letting her know that at my next appointment, I would really like to sit down and talk with her. I didn't get that opportunity, unfortunately, because she severed the physician-patient relationship.
2: What sort of questions did you have?
1: Um, The fact that I'd left it so long before I went to the doctor, could that be a problem? Could we have a discussion with regard to the two standards of care that I'd come across? She shut me down with regards to anything to do with the ILADS guidelines. And at the point at which um, she stopped seeing you, um, was the infectious
2: disease specialist of the opinion that you did not have Lyme disease at that time?
1: Yes. That's
2: likely because Jane never had an early test showing she actually had Lyme disease. Seems straightforward, but it isn't. And that's because there's a lot of disagreement about the testing itself. The IDSA, the group of American infectious diseases experts, says the testing is pretty good if you use a reputable lab. And if you know the limitations of the tests, Dr. Isaac Bogosh is an infectious disease specialist at University Health Network in Toronto. He agrees.
4: Certainly I think the test for the vast majority of patients is is perfectly fine but by no means would I say that this is a perfect diagnostic test. In very early cases of Lyme disease we know that the test is uh, unlikely to be positive and most practitioners would just uh, treat Lyme or or if they decided not to treat Lyme at that point they should certainly retest the patient. There's multiple multiple studies that uh, demonstrate that luckily the vast majority of patients that have an infection Uh, that's from Lyme disease, get diagnosed uh, appropriately with with the existing diagnostic tests.
2: Critics like ILADS, the international group that favours more aggressive treatment for chronic Lyme, say standard testing has serious limitations. As one of a few doctors in Canada who treats chronic Lyme disease outside of the IDSA guidelines, Dr. Ralph Hawkins is familiar with the tests. He's an internist and site lead at Calgary's South Health Campus Hospital. He's also a clinical associate professor of medicine at the University of Calgary. Well, the diagnosis
5: of Lyme disease can sometimes be a matter of debate. Um, The serologies, the tests that we use are really far from precise. Um, It's sometimes like uh, looking out the window with uh, wax paper uh, over the window. You're not really sure what you're seeing when you're looking at the test results.
2: One problem is that many patients test negative for Lyme disease during the first two weeks of illness. Doctors call that a false negative test. A second problem is that the test does not identify patients with chronic Lyme, and it doesn't distinguish Lyme symptoms from those caused by fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. A 2018 Canadian study suggested the tests only capture three to four percent of Lyme cases. Dr. Hawkins worked on that study. Our estimate
5: was we're missing 10 or 12-fold the number of diagnoses of Lyme disease in the country because of failed diagnostics and failed clinical practices. Wow, that's Um, a lot. Yeah. A recent uh, Rejoinder article has been written now by the Public Health Agency of Canada's scientists, and uh, their estimate in their own article is that their diagnostic approach is probably capturing a third of the true cases. So they're admitting to underestimating by threefold. So I don't think that the idea that the diagnosis is being missed is controversial. What is controversial is the magnitude of
2: how badly it's being missed. So what does all this back and forth over testing mean to patients like Jane Bailey? who say they have symptoms of chronic Lyme. With a positive test, it's hard enough convincing doctors you have chronic Lyme disease. For people like Jane, who didn't test positive, it's almost impossible. As a result, frustrated patients, and even doctors like Ralph Hawkins, turn to U.S. labs that have different standards. Jane got a positive diagnosis from the same California lab Dr. Ralph Hawkins relies on. And that's another part of the controversy. While not specifically naming that lab, Dr. Bogosh, the infectious diseases expert in Toronto, says some labs take advantage of patients who are desperate for a diagnosis. There's
4: a well-trodden path uh, demonstrating that many, I'm not saying all, but many of these laboratories are actually predatory laboratories where they charge patients uh, large sums of money and the results uh,
5: are often questionable.
2: Dr. Ralph Hawkins says he's seen patients who have spent thousands of dollars on dubious tests and treatments.
5: I have patients who have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, desperately trying to find...
2: Hundreds of thousands of dollars?
5: Yes. It's a shocking thing. This is part of what really propelled me to continue doing this practice, is because uh, if I was not here in Calgary doing this, people would be uh, subjecting themselves to the potential of someone with, uh, I think,
2: less altruistic motives, um, taking advantage of them. Still, unlike Dr. Bogosh, Hawkins trusts the lab work from the U.S. when combined with his own clinical judgment. Well, we, we talk to our patients.
5: Uh, you know, we go back to medicine the way that it was taught to me in the 1970s. Um, I spend probably 60 to 90 minutes taking a history from my patients on first visit.
2: Since diagnosing his first patient with chronic Lyme disease in 2012... Hawkins has attracted patients from across Canada. That's because he's one of very few doctors willing to work outside the IDSA treatment guidelines. Over the course of time, I uh,
5: have become known within the Lyme community, and I've treated probably 350 to 400 patients with alternatively diagnosed Lyme disease since 2012. And I have a waiting list at the present time that
2: is uh, probably in the magnitude of another 300. Hawkins estimates around 20% of the patients he sees don't have Lyme disease. The rest do, and many of them have stories similar to Jane Bailey's about being dismissed by physicians. Some of the stories are just uh, remarkably cruel. Honestly, the
5: stories that I hear are that the physicians seeing them speak almost with derisive hatred about the idea that Lyme disease could be responsible for their symptoms. It's visceral pain that these people have when they tell the stories. What do you think is
2: behind that? I don't
5: really get it, Brian. I really don't get it. I I do understand the frustration that physicians might have not being able to come up with a diagnosis. I understand the difficulty that people might have with knowing that there are charlatans, you know, peddling things like drink this bleach water and you're going to get all better. I don't understand the transference of that kind of feeling to the poor patient who is uh, sick with their symptoms. Sorry, I'm getting emotional here. (laughs)
2: Dr. John Aucott at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore says he's seen the same thing at his clinic.
0: One of the most effective things we do is actually give the patient a diagnosis because they've often been told for years um, that there's nothing wrong with them or that it's their fault that it's all in their head. There really is a diagnosis called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome and that we believe that it started when they had Lyme disease and that we don't think it's their fault or all in their head. That's really quite crucial actually.
5: Hi guys, it's me, Ty Poole, and I'm back, and I have way more questions! Things like, what are animals saying to each other? Why is space so dark? What's the science behind bullying? This season, I'm willing to go where no 7th grader has ever gone before to find you the answers. Ty asks why rest your eyes and prepare your ears for all new episodes of Ty Asks Why.
2: You're listening to White Coat Art. Today, unpacking the controversy over Lyme disease and how the debate over chronic Lyme disease has left patients feeling abandoned by the Canadian medical system. As Jane Bailey got sicker, she gave up trying to find a doctor in Canada willing to treat her. She found one in Maine.
1: He said that I had late stage disseminated Lyme disease and persistence of infection and that it was such a classic case he was very surprised that had been allowed to go on so long. It was extremely emotional actually because I finally felt like I'd had some validation um, and that someone was really listening to me. I mean I was with this doctor for four hours at my first visit. He knew um, what my life had been like The best part, apart from knowing that I had something that could be treated, was the validation that um, a doctor was willing to listen and discuss with me what was going on.
2: That doctor was willing to treat her based on ILADS guidelines and prescribed multiple antibiotics, which she had to pay for. All told, she thinks she spent $50,000 on treatment and travel-related expenses. She says it was worth it, although she's not fully recovered.
1: Compared to what I was, it's, it's night and day, but um, I'm still on a major road to recovery. I have good days and bad days, and I've had to look at my life completely differently, actually, and reassess, because the life that I thought I was going to have when I was 48 years old moving forward is completely different. It took me quite a while to adjust to what my new normal was going to be and now is.
2: But the treatment Jane considers life-saving is worrisome to Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Like the IDSA and most health professionals, he has concerns about over-prescribing of antibiotics. He's not convinced the drugs are an effective treatment.
4: There's certainly lots of evidence suggesting that the treatment of patients in this situation with antibiotics doesn't only not help these individuals, but there can be harm there's many papers demonstrating how people can have uh, really bad side effects and, uh, and complications from prolonged treatment with, uh, with antibiotics. Having said that, you know, I think people in this, in this situation obviously need care. They obviously need compassion. And uh, we should be taking a very holistic approach to the care of, of individuals who are, who are in this setting.
2: Hawkins says the studies the IDSA and Bogosh cite ignore patients like Jane who didn't get a positive Lyme test during her initial symptoms and wasn't treated early on. Now, we're supposed to believe that prolonged use of antibiotic
5: therapy is not beneficial. Well, one thing about a randomized controlled trial is it has to be generalizable to the people that you're seeing in your office. Hmm. So how many people in my office are receiving two weeks of intravenous ceftriaxone before I get to see them? The answer is zero. Hmm. This is not a generalizable study to the population of patients that I am seeing.
2: The issue of treatment is so fraught that Dr. John Alcott at Johns Hopkins declined to give me specifics of what he prescribes at
0: his clinic. It's an individualized course of treatment because, again, um, there's no right answer, and also every patient is different. He does say that he thinks the only way treatment will improve is with more research. There's been a few studies for the treatment of post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, but way too few. You know, if you look at other diseases, um, you know, like cancer and HIV and other, we think are models for what Lyme disease should be like. You know, the number of studies number in, you know, in the hundreds, if not thousands. You know, when you look at the studies for the treatment of post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, you can count them on a couple hands. But the few studies that have been done looking at, especially at intravenous antibiotics, show that they um, don't cure post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome the way you would expect an antibiotic to cure an infectious disease. So there's something different about post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, but that's about the limits of the literature on treatment. In the absence of
2: definitive science, there's a lot of disagreements and even some name-calling. Some have dubbed it the Lyme War. In a 2011 article published in The Lancet, a group of doctors from several prestigious U.S. medical schools accused Lyme advocates of being anti-science. And they question the expertise of the medical practitioners who treat them. Some advocates have even been called Lime Loonies. I asked Dr. Alcott about
0: that. Have you ever been called a Lime Loony? I'm not a patient. You know, I think all researchers have their research challenged. I think it's a challenging field, you know, because there is this emotional content that you're drawing out here that probably is a distraction and and really distracts from finding the answers and helping the patients.
2: Helping patients and doctors by ending the confusion over testing is Alcott's passion. His lab is collecting blood samples from patients with Lyme disease. His goal is a blood test that would diagnose the disease at any
0: stage, leaving no room for debate. It would be transformational because, A, you could take this broad umbrella group of chronic Lyme disease patients and figure out who actually has post-treatment Lyme disease illness, Um, and it's not going to be everyone. Some of those patients may have an illness that was related to prior mono or to a prior other viral infection or something else. Then you could start testing therapies better because right now when you test a therapy, you don't have a biomarker to know if your therapy is working. The most constructive thing we
2: can say is that experts on both sides say what's needed is a dose of empathy for patients like Jane Bailey and for one another. Here's Dr. Ralph Hawkins in Calgary. This is a
5: group of patients who are being systematically disrespected. I can't say it any more strongly. Uh, The practitioners who treat Lyme disease beyond the guidelines that are written has been called by those guideline authors. Quacks, they have been called parasites. It is profoundly acrimonious and needlessly so. Consider first the well-being of your patient is the first premise of the code of ethics to relieve suffering. How are we doing that by disrespecting those patients? So we just need to go back to the basics of what medicine's all about. Relieve suffering and care about the well-being of our patients.
2: As we mentioned, the Infectious Diseases Society of America is updating its treatment guidelines for Lyme disease. It's the first revision in 13 years. As part of the process, the group, which has been skeptical of chronic Lyme disease, invited doctors and the public for input. A final version will be released in the months ahead. That's our show for this week. Many of you have had experiences with Lyme disease that we're hoping you'll share with us. Email us at whitecoat at cbc.ca. I'm on Twitter at nightshiftmd, and the show is at CBC Whitecoat. We're also on Facebook, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast at subscriptions.cbc.ca and wherever you obtain your podcasts. This week's show was produced by senior producer Donna Dingwall with help from Sujata Berry, Jeff Goods, and digital producers Ruby Buiza and Jonathan Orr. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you
0: next week.